Welcome to Fangthology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering the myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture. We're your hosts, Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. Vampires are the ideal metaphor for creators to explore various contemporary concerns and issues, and adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula are an extension of that. Every adaptation of Dracula in some way reflects the time in which it was made. Published in 1897, Dracula is one of the most widely read and instantly recognisable stories in the literary canon. The eponymous vampire Count is one of the most portrayed literary characters of all time, second only to Sherlock Holmes. Consistently in print for over 120 years, Dracula has been translated into dozens of languages, and it's one of those translations that we're here to discuss today. What we expect from a translation is a stridently faithful process, Nothing changed aside from the words themselves. In reality, the politics of translation are far more complex than that, with heavier questions of historical and cultural context to consider. In A Theory of Adaptation, scholar Linda Hutchin argues that, quote, There is a kind of dialogue between the society in which the works, both the adapted text and adaptation, are produced and that in which they are received, and both are in dialogue with the works themselves. End quote. Essentially, adaptation is a more tangled process than going from one language to another. It's a gateway to reinterpretation and even total recreation of the tale in question. To adapt a story from one culture to another should involve more than simply language, Hutchins argues. In the case of Dracula, one translation of the novel was so different that it took on a life of its own. In essence, it became one of the first true literary bootleg novels. This is the story of Dracula in Istanbul. In 1928, over 30 years following its initial publication, the Turkish edition of Dracula made its way to shelves. However, Bram Stoker's name was not on the cover. Dracula in its original form wouldn't be published in Turkish until its 100th anniversary in 1998. Instead, the credited author was its translator, Ali Risa Seyfi, and its title was changed to Kazakh Voda, or Impaler Voda. Ali Riza Seyfi was a novelist and historian who worked for many years at the Turkish Naval Science Commission. His initial work was focused on naval history research, and after retiring, he began working as an English translator at the press department. Seyfi's published work includes various historical biographies and explorations of Turkish identity and the then-ongoing war of Turkish independence. During this period, the question of Turkish national identity and patriotism came to the forefront of defining the newly formed Republic of Turkey which was officially proclaimed on the 29th of October, 1923. A mass campaign of language reform took place in 1932 with the aim of replacing loanwords of Arabic and Persian origin with Turkish equivalents. A unified language was considered crucial for the strengthening of a nation, especially in a weakened post-war state. This even took the form of people changing their names. On December 24, 1934, the regulations on family names was adopted by the Turkish government, which established new rules regarding names and naming practices, New family names had to be chosen in the Turkish language, and it was forbidden, quote, to bear a name appearing to contain suffixes or words implying the idea of another identity or nationality, or borrowed from a language other than Turkish, end quote. 
Even Aliriza Seife followed suit, changing his name from the original Seifeoilu, which was deemed to contain non-Turkish elements, to the more nationalistic version he maintained for the remainder of his life. All of this is important to note in regards to Dracula and Istanbul for a number of reasons. It helps to provide crucial context as to how this translation took the shape that it did, and it also explains details such as the name changes made throughout. Seyfi worked alongside Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the field marshal who helped secure Ottoman Turkish victory in Gallipoli in 1915 and who became the first president of the Republic of Turkey. He was the driving force behind the push for language reform, both as a means of strengthening the country and to erase the stain of imperialism. Seyfi was one of the key figureheads in the campaign to bring writings and other works of cultural significance to the forefront. It is believed that, through his work, Seyfi found Stoker's novel, although scholars have been unable to prove conclusively whether it was Atatürk who greenlit the translation process itself. When Kazik the Voivoda was published, it was assumed by Turkish readers to be an indigenous novel. There was no indication that it was anything other than that, since Stoker's name wasn't even on the cover. This was a book intended for a very specific and local audience, and the content reflects that. Impella Voivod is ostensibly a reasonably faithful translation of Dracula, albeit one that takes a number of curious liberties. For one, it's substantially shorter than Stoker's novel, about a third of the length. The basic plot beats are there. A lawyer heads to Transylvania to do business with a sinister count, an innocent maiden falls ill with a mysterious illness, and a professor is called upon to kill some vampires. But lots of subplots and familiar scenes are excised, The entire segment of the Demeter is gone, as are most of the scenes between Lucy and Mina. In many ways, it's similar to the abridged classic novels publishers release for younger audiences or those learning English. All of the narrative drive, with none of the subplots. The novel starts out pretty closely tied to Stoker's original, but deviates sharply towards the conclusion. A lot more time is spent in the beginning with Dracula and Jonathan, here named Asmi, than in the later scenes with Mina and Lucy, here named Kutsin and Sedan. The focus is decidedly more on the male characters, with Lucy's part in the narrative reduced more to that of a plot point than a fully rounded character. The tragedy of her death is still a crucial part of Safi's translation, but her indelible friendship with Mina, which forms the emotional backbone of the novel, has been greatly stripped down. The entire ending is basically absent, with the chase back to Dracula's homeland to destroy him gone. Instead of dying in Transylvania, he is killed on Turkish soil. The key change made in Safi's translation is less rooted in the narrative than the thematic. Dracula has always been a story rooted in themes of xenophobia. The image of the mysterious and dangerous foreigner coming over to England, taking over the lands and preying on their women is a potent one, and subsequent Dracula adaptations have frequently played around with this image, albeit almost exclusively with white people. This idea of the invading villain takes on a whole new level of historical context when the setting is moved from Victorian England to Turkey of the 1920s. We see the influence of Safi's time in his translation, a period when a post-war Turkey was seeking to provide an image of cultural and political unity. In the translation, Dracula is not just a simple Romanian aristocrat seeking to wreak havoc on a new city that happens to be Istanbul. He is revealed to be one of the most infamous figures in Eastern European history. Do you know who this hellish beast is who stands before us? It is none other than the accursed demon known centuries ago to the Turks as the Black Devil, the Devil Vavoida, and the Impaler Vavoida. You can see this Dracula in all his bloody vile colour in the pages of history concerning the reign of Mehmed II during the Turkish Empire. 
This man was born five centuries ago and was responsible for the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of Turks near the Danube River. Our history, and even his own populace in his day, refers to him as the Impaler Voroda and the Black Devil, as we do now. In the pages of our history, you may find this demon's family name, Dracula, as well as his given name, Vlad. To contemporary Turkish readers, this particular revelation would have been an interesting one given its unique context. Vlad the Impaler, the voivode of Wallachia, was considered a national hero in his native Romania, but his legacy is far more fraught to those based in what was once known as the Ottoman Empire. Vlad's family launched a bloody military campaign against the Ottomans in the mid-15th century, wherein tens of thousands of Turks and Bulgarians were massacred. Following his death, the tales of Vlad's infamous cruelty spread far and wide. One such legendary instance was detailed in Antonio Bonfini's Historia Panonica. Turkish messengers came to Vlad to pay respects, but refused to take off their turbans according to their ancient custom, whereupon he strengthened their custom by nailing their turbans to their heads with three spikes so that they could not take them off. The connection between Count Dracula and Vlad Sepes has been widely accepted by the general public, and it is typically said that Bram Stoker was directly influenced by Sepes's life when writing his novel. However, as noted by academic Elizabeth Miller, Stoker didn't base his character on the historical figure. He may have borrowed the name, but that's all. The assumption that Vlad the Impaler is the vampire count is purely apocryphal. What many people don't know is that the connection between the two originated not with Stoker, but with Safi and his translation. It may have been teased out and developed by other writers over the ensuing decades, partially because of their initial assumption. But the origins of this are rooted thoroughly in the Turkish translation. The terrifying legacy of Tepes across the Turkish region is evident in Safi's translation. The quote, bloody, terrifying and dreadful deeds that Voivod Dracul committed in the history of the Turkish Empire, end quote, are noted as a rightful reason for the protagonist to fear and loathe him. It is noted frequently throughout the translation that the thing Dracula thirsts for the most is Turkish blood, and that he desires it more than he does to even take over the country. Here, Dracula is not just a murderer, he is a colonizer. To destroy Dracula is the ultimate act of patriotism, a moment of nationalist revenge against an old enemy who left deep running scars across the region. Isn't that strange, my fellows? We will prevent a monster who centuries ago was not satiated with Turkish blood from drinking Turkish blood again in Istanbul and destroy him while armies, states could not. Who would believe this? God, is it possible to believe? These nationalist themes also appear through the translation's use of religion. We're all used to the image of Dracula or other vampires being repelled by the cross, to the point where it's easy to assume that Christianity is a default weapon against the undead. It's rare to see other religions being utilised in this manner, although it's not unheard of. In The Fearless Vampire Killers, one vampire laughs in the face of a woman wielding a crucifix because it doesn't work on a Jewish vampire. In this translation, the predominantly Muslim ensemble use the Quran as their weapon, but particular emphasis is put on the fact that the denomination itself is not important so much as the act of faith itself. He is also afraid of the Holy Quran and the soil from the grave of our prophet. In fact, the Christian nations use their crosses to protect themselves against vampires. In short, the sacredness of religion is considered a weapon against vampires everywhere. It's interesting to note that Safi does not prize one religion over the other. The important thing is that belief works as a whole, regardless of whether you use the Bible, the Quran, or whatever religious text is at your disposal to kill your undead. 
Turkey is a secular country with no official religion, something that is rooted in the country's constitution. One academic noted, quote, Seyfi's purpose in this exchange was not to praise Islam over Christianity, but to create an atmosphere that is familiar to Turkish readers, end quote. Whatever his intentions for translating Dracula, it's clear that Seyfi saw something significant in the novel and understood the rhetorical power within its pages, especially in regards to the title character. His translation of the novel stands tall as a unique example of how the countless reimaginings of Stoker's novel utilise its narrative in favour of exploring contemporary concerns and issues. This would happen once more when Seyfi's translation was adapted for the big screen in Turkey, under the name Dracula in Istanbul. Dracula in Istanbul was a 1953 film directed by Mehmet Muta that sold itself as an adaptation of Stoker's novel. Although, of course, it was taken more from Seyfi's free translation. Cinema has long been a crucial part of Turkish modern art and culture. Following the Second World War, film production increased dramatically in the country, and by the 1960s, Turkey was one of the biggest film producers in the world. A common occurrence during this period was locally made bootleg versions of popular American and Hollywood titles. Such works included Tarzan in Istanbul, itself taken from a bootleg novel, 1973's Uma the Taurus in Star Trek, 1973's Yarasa Adam, also known as Turkish Batman, and 1979's Superman Dunya, the local take on Superman. A lot of these were parodies or strange copyright infringing homages that were intended specifically for local audiences. Dracula in Istanbul, however, had a curiously long-lasting impact on the vampire genre as well as our assumptions of Stoker's novel. As with the novel, the film is a contemporary story, and the Turkey of 1953 was very different from that of 30 years prior. What is notable about Dracula in Istanbul, the film, is that the changes it makes from its source material ended up creating a film that is remarkably faithful to Stoker's novel rather than Safi's translation. Indeed, it could be argued that Dracula in Istanbul was, up to that point in history, the most faithful Dracula movie ever made. And in many respects, it's still one of the most faithful adaptations. For one, the movie almost entirely strips away the nationalist editions of the translation. The Vlad Sepesh connection is barely mentioned, whereas on the page it is arguably the thematic backbone of the story. The themes of faith have also been removed. Rather than relying on pieces of religious iconography such as the Quran, the most frequently used weapon against Dracula is garlic. Characters wield garlic in the same way that they would the cross in most other vampire movies. This more secular take is also evident in the changes made to the Mina character, Gutzin. Here, she works not as a schoolmistress, but as a sexy dancer, which gives the film numerous opportunities to show her dancing in skimpy outfits. The changes made to Gutzin are particularly interesting from a Dracula adaptation perspective. Here, she's already married to Jonathan rather than merely betrothed. She seems to be the breadwinner of the family, and she and Asmi are a thoroughly modern couple, elegant and well-dressed. Both Gutzin and Sedan are coded in sexual terms, but never shamed for it, which is particularly unique given how much the notion of Lucy as an unbridled slut is an accepted trope of Dracula adaptations. Dracula in Istanbul is also the very first Dracula film that we know of, wherein the title character is shown to have fangs. This Dracula, played by Atif Kaptan, has tusk-like teeth that protrude from his upper lip. This is also the first screen version of Dracula where he scales down the walls like a lizard and where he offers a newborn baby to one of his brides as a feast. 
The iconography that it pioneers is now commonplace in basically all adaptations of the novel, even the loosest ones. Stoker's novel wasn't present in Turkey for decades, so it's fascinating that Dracula in Istanbul ends up being as faithful to the original novel as it is. We can't say for sure whether other adaptations were widely broadcast in Turkey over the decades preceding the production of Dracula in Istanbul. Frankly, that's a topic for somebody else's PhD thesis. But if they did, and that wouldn't be very many movies, it still can't fully explain the changes made because those prior adaptations aren't very faithful. Todd Browning's 1931 film starring Bela Lugosi greatly differs from the novel, as does Nosferatu. It may be cultural osmosis or pure coincidence. Whatever the case, the nature of Dracula and its flexibility as a tool for adaptation prevails across time and location. Dracula in Istanbul is now available to watch on YouTube with subtitles, and an English-language translation of Safi's take on the novel can be bought from the publisher Neon Harbour. We heartily recommend that you check out both. They're fascinating and enjoyable pieces of work, as well as crucial parts of Dracula lore. After decades of being pop culture myths, it's satisfying to be able to fill this enormous gap in the timeline of vampire lore. Thanks for listening to Fangphology. This episode was written and performed by Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slapova, and edited by Catherine Slapova. Please like, share and review us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. More information and links on our research can be found on our website, fangphology.com. For bite-sized trivia, haha, and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, also under the name Fangphology. Lately, we've been posting a lot about upcoming vampire novel releases and vampire nonfiction. Hopefully, you'll find something that will interest you. We'd also like to apologise for any errors we made in our Turkish pronunciations. We've taken the best care possible to research the language, but neither of us speaks Turkish and we really wanted to do the best work possible. So we are very sorry. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon for another episode of Fangphology. 